Good morning, everyone. I trust you are all well. I am privileged this morning to be able to bring God's word to you. And I trust that it will be a blessing to you and to your families. First of all, let's pray. Father, we're happy this morning first to acknowledge your position as our Lord. We cannot properly express the gratitude that we have for the position that we have as your sons and daughters. Through the selfless sacrifice of your son, during his life and especially at his death on the cross, you were fully satisfied with the work of redemption which he accomplished. And now <clears throat> we've been reconciled with you and made part of your kingdom. Father, we're also thankful this morning that we can meet as a community, even though we're doing it in this virtual way. It's during a period of severe dislocation in almost every aspect of our former routines. We mourn our inability to meet together, and we acknowledge our inability to change the condition. But our Father, we are thankful that this increases our dependence upon you, and we're thankful that we have the ability to be present with one another this morning in this way. As we have sung together and prayed together as families, and now as we encourage one another through your word, we trust that our spirits will be refreshed and that we'll be strengthened to continue in full dependence upon your mercy and your love to protect and bless us. We ask for these things, our Father, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, last week, Gio introduced the study of the Lament Psalms, and in particular, he looked at Psalm 51. I've chosen to review Psalm 130 with you this morning, another Lament Psalm. And it's my privilege to do so, so let's go and read that passage together now. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now I intend to review this psalm this morning in some detail with emphasis on three phrases which I highlighted in yellow in our passage on screen. And this is the model for lament, lament prayer. I cry to the Lord, seen in verse 1. I wait for the Lord, seen in verse 5. And I hope in the Lord, 
seen in verse 7. I cry, I wait, I hope. Now the Psalms are all about an expression of emotion. It's not narrative, it's not history, it's not theology. It's an outward expression, a written outward expression of inner human feelings. The Reformation theologian Calvin said this about the Psalms. All the sorrows and troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, and stormy outbreaks of life have been depicted here in the Psalms. The Psalms are literally poetry and contain all the emotion that poetry usually evokes. C.S. Lewis emphasized that when he wrote that the Psalms must be read as poems, as lyrics with the formalities, hyperboles, and emotional connections of lyrical poetry. And so as we read the Psalms, particularly lament Psalms, we can see parallel feelings of four different groups of people. First of all, the psalmist himself. And here in Psalm 130, there's an individual who has written this psalm who feels very strongly and his emotions come through the emotions of the psalmist himself. But secondly, we can see in Psalms the whole of the nation of Israel, particularly as it relates to when they were in exile and were crying out to the Lord to redeem them and to return them to the land. In some Psalms, we can even experience the emotions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And lastly, of course, we can all individual, individually relate to the Psalms and see in them our own personal experiences. While the Psalms were not written to the New Testament church, they are valuable for the present day church in that they convey the feelings and emotions of individual church members, including you and including me. Paul in Romans 15 and 4 writes that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's in Romans 15. As you can see, Paul states that the Old Testament scriptures give us hope. And in particular, Psalms, including Lament Psalms, were written to give us hope. In fact, right in our passage today, the psalmist says in verse 4, in God's word, that is in God's uh, promise, in his covenant, in his word, I hope. And further, in verse 7, he demands hope in the Lord. So the Psalms embody all human experience, persecution, suffering and sorrow, hatred and abandonment, but also the positive attributes of exaltation, glory, even jubilation. As Geo outlined to us last week, Psalm 130 is six of the seven traditional penitential lament psalms. Now, penitential refers to the fact that the psalmist was aware that he was a sinner requiring cleansing from God or repentance from God. Over and above these seven penitential psalms, 
There are other lament psalms which contain lament passages. Scholars, in fact, identify up to 58 of the psalms that contain lament refrains. That's a third of the psalms. Lament is the outpouring of emotion when things appear to be helpless and hopeless. It is not complaint. Rather, it's the emotional expression of dependence upon God. In the days of David, the lament was a physical activity. The psalmist's posture would be kneeling in supplication, or sometimes the posture even would be laying out on the ground, expressing abandonment. Sometimes dust was thrown up over their heads, and often their clothes would be torn, or they would be wearing coarse garments rather than new clothes, and often the uh, psalmist would be fasting as he prayed. While we do not practice such prayer rituals today, we certainly can appropriate the psalmist's example and make lament part of Christian prayer. Like the Old Testament saints, we endure pain and sickness. We endure persecution, particularly Christians uh, outside of our uh, uh, continent here. We endure the death of a loved one. There is terrorism that causes problems. A world pandemic, such as the one that we are suffering now. Evil, such as was seen in Nova Scotia earlier this week. Financial difficulty and depression and mental illness. These are suffered by Christians and non-Christians alike. And so we endure and we lament as others do. In Old Testament times, Israel equated prosperity and peace with God's blessing, with godliness. So when things went wrong, they assumed that God was angry with them. Now, as Christians, we know that this is not necessarily the case. We are often tested in our faith in order to draw us closer to him. That attitude of continual dependence upon him that God is looking for is the way in which we should approach him. Should not be ashamed to question God about our circumstances. Again, it's not complaining and it's not accusatory. Rather, lament is made with the understanding that we can find solace with him. Our Lord himself prayed with lament. In John 12, he prayed, my soul is troubled. In John 15, he says, I'm hated without a cause without a reason. In John 13, he says, a close friend has lifted his heel against me. And of course, that famous lament upon the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the Savior quotes from another lament psalm, Psalm 22. Now, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 7 says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears uh, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So clearly, our Lord lamented. Now let's look at the psalm in some detail. There are two sections or two stanzas in this psalm. The first is in verses 1 to 4, and the second is in verses 5 to 8. In the first stanza, 
the psalmist cries for mercy for sins that he believes he's committed. The verses 1 and 2 could almost be summarized by the penitence prayer that's found in Luke chapter 18, where the repentant tax collector cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just like the psalmist did here in verses 1 and 2. Remarkably, we come to a blessed <clears throat> God, and verses 3 and 4 remind us that a repentant sinner is forgiven. The second stanza comprises verses 5 to 8, and the psalmist explains how he is going to wait for God's answer and hope for his deliverance. Now let's go back and look at the passage in detail. First, I want us to see that in certain other verses where the Lord is referred to, the actual Hebrew wording would require us to place, replace Lord with Yah or I am. And as you're all aware, the title of I am is assigned to God many times in both the Old and New Testaments, including being many, used in many times in John's Gospel where Jesus refers to himself. We went through that in some detail last year. So we'll see in the following five references to I am in this passage. In verse 1, we cry out to I am. He's the God who hears. In verse 3, uh, I am is the God who knows our sins. In verse 5, we wait for I am. He's the God who eventually answers. And in verse 7, we hope for I am, and he is the I am of unfailing love. What an awesome comfort it is to know that when we cry to the eternal, immeasurable, and omnipotent I am, we know that he hears us, he forgives us, he answers us, and he loves us. That's a fabulous comfort at the best of times, and it's an unending source of comfort in difficult times. Now let's look at our passage verse by verse. The words here marked in yellow relate to me and to you, and the words that are highlighted in blue relate to our God. In verses 1 and 2, we see that my voice and my pleas result in God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Out of the depths, in verse 1, the psalmist feels like he's drowning in an ocean of misery from sin. And as Christians, we sometimes are conscious of our sins and feel overwhelmed, a depth of embarrassment. Like the psalmist, we're encouraged to cry out to God and to set it before him. Verse 2 says, my voice goes to God's ears. There's a common present-day expression used by Jewish people when they say, when they hear someone express hope about a positive future event, the Jewish person will say, from your mouth to God's ears. And this verse puts the psalmist in that very possession, or sorry, in that very position. He wants his voice to go directly to God's ears. In verses 2 to 4, God's mercy and his forgiveness inspire worship and reverence. The word feared at the end of verse 4 means worship. In these four verses, the next four verses, again the words marked in yellow relate to me and you, and the words highlighted in blue refer to God. 
verse 5, the waiting of my soul is written two times. And the word or promise or covenant of God and the love of God and the redemption of God are highlighted in blue. The soul that waits receives evidence of God's very nature in love and redemption. So in the passage as a whole, we see that the attributes of God acknowledged by the psalmist are mercy and forgiveness in verses 2 and 4. The one who keeps his promise or keeps his word, which we saw in verse 5. God's love in verse 7 and his redemption as well in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 says that he has the capability to redeem, plentiful redemption. Our Lord is able to redeem. But in verse 8, we see as well that he has the will to redeem. He is able and willing, and he does redeem. The outset, I remarked that this psalm identifies how we should pray. We cry, we wait. And we hope. In pleasant, prosperous times, meaningful prayer is often the first casualty. But when we're being tossed about by the storms of life, uh, then we really come to know uh, God's throne of grace as we come to Him in strong, insistent, and pleading prayer. Obviously, in this psalm, the writer is in one of the troughs of his life. There's no way to look around or to look down. He has to look up. And so he writes this prayer from out of the depths, as verse 1 says, but aims it to the highest heaven. He pleads that his solitary voice is heard and that God will provide him an audience. And of course, God does answer. In the psalmist's mind, his troubles were associated with some deep sin. Now, this may or may not have been the case in the psalmist's life. As we learned last week, sometimes our troubles are designed to enrich and grow us in ways that have nothing to do with our individual sins. On the other hand, sometimes our troubles are designed to discipline us and to draw us back to God. Whatever the case, it's always a good idea to eliminate unconfessed sin as a possible cause each time we approach God in a humble way and ask for forgiveness, as the psalmist does here in Psalm 130. As verse 3 says, if the Lord should mark our iniquities, that means count our iniquities, we would be unable to stand before him. If he kept an itemized account and made us pay on the line for our sins, then our situation would be totally helpless. But we're eternally grateful that there was a way a truth, and a life by which our sins could be forgiven. There was a time in each of our lives where we first realized that Jesus' death on the cross was a result of our personal sin. We acknowledged our culpability in his crucifixion, and we accepted that his death was on our behalf. That was a one-time forgiveness for each of us as guilty sinners as we exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were forgiven from the penalty of sin, those that we had committed in the past, those that we commit in the present, and those even that we will commit in the future, were all handled by our substitute, Jesus, upon the cross. This forgiveness on the date of salvation, I will call uh, forgiveness from 
or judicial forgiveness by God the judge. However, there's a second type of forgiveness, which I will call parental forgiveness by God the Father. Parental forgiveness is forgiven during the many times during our lifetime as a Christian as we confess our sins to him. As a result of this forgiveness, there's a restoration of our fellowship with God and with his family. This forgiveness, too, was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ when he shed his blood on the cross. And Jesus himself appears now for us before God, before his throne, and represents us to the Father. In effect, he points to his work on the cross and asks the Father to view us in light of his blood shed. And as God sees the blood of Christ and exercises his forgiveness in love to us, it's in, in love to his son and in his complete satisfaction with Christ's cross work that he forgives us as penitent sinners. As a parent, he forgives us uh, in love. Forgiveness also produces the restoration of a broken fellowship. We can see in verse 4 that as a result of forgiveness, God is feared. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be afraid of him. He's not one to be approached in terror. Instead, once I recognize that my forgiveness is free and full and eternal, it causes me to worship, to reverence God, to respect him, to trust him, and to love him. Forgiveness generates worship. Sin can actually be dispiriting to Christians. It can depress as we recognize that our old nature has not deserted us. However, there is no sin that we cannot take to God in prayer that he refuses to forgive. We have but to ask and he will forgive. We must ask. He wants us to be dependent upon him every day. In the disciples' prayer, Jesus asked us to forgive our sins, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. You'll remember that this was a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So make sure daily as you request God's forgiveness uh, that God the Father uh, will then uh, forgive you on each day that you approach him. He forgives, he cleanses anew, and slowly but surely, little by little, he makes us grow into the likeness of his dear son. A number of years ago, I sat down with a sister in Christ who'd been tormented by a sin that she had committed some 20 years earlier in her early 20s. Now, she had the sense that it was something that she would never live down, even though she had repented. She was living in a continual state of emotional depression because of how that sin preyed upon her mind. We emphasized with her that Christ's work on the cross covered not just her sins judicially and made her available for heaven, but that her repentance before Christ meant that she was forgiven parentally, that day by day she was cleansed. As you might expect, there were tears aplenty as we were able to give her assurance from God's word and that he cared for her as a cleansed saint on an ongoing daily basis. She's since gone on to live an exemplary Christian life, honoring God and being a blessing to God's people.
In verse 5, the psalmist says that he's waiting for the Lord. Sometimes God answers our prayers immediately, and other times he asks us to wait. In this case, the psalmist has learned to wait for the Lord and to hope in his word. To hope, in other words, that God's word will come through as promised. To hear and to answer in accordance with God's timing. The night watchman waits for the morning. He looks keenly for that first light of dawn, even though he's tired of a long night of vigilance. He longs to see the Lord bring light into the darkness. The psalmist says it twice to emphasize the point. We're to wait and watch with vigilance for the answer of the Lord, who as sure as dawn comes after the night, will answer in his time. Verses 5 and 6 have a wider application for us today that we should not miss. And as Christians, we look for the dawn of the coming of the Lord to translate his church into heaven. This blessed hope also will not be disappointed. The last two verses, 7 and 8, should be thought of as the psalmist's testimony after his prayer uh, for deliverance has been answered. Having proved God's forgiveness and his blessing, he wants to share that expression with others as well. In verse 8, all of Israel by extension and all of us are encouraged to hope in the Lord for three reasons. First of all, his love is unchanging. His love is part of God's character and therefore cannot change. Secondly, his redemption is unlimited in its supply. He says it's a plentiful redemption. He's able to redeem. And third, he is willing to redeem us from sin. Psalmist begins this song in the depths of gloom and depression, and he closes it out with a call to trust in God for whom no problem is too mountainous and no dilemma is too complex. We cry to the Lord. We wait for the Lord. We hope in the Lord. The COVID-19 world epidemic we are suffering has caused Christians to ask, why of God? That's not unexpected. We want to understand and find a reason for what's going on around us. This pandemic makes us question all of our preconceived notions about what life should look like, and so we want an explanation. There are certain Christians making statements about the pandemic that they have no right to. They are wrong to say things like, this is God's punishment for homosexuality, or this is God's punishment for uh, abortion. Or they might say, uh, I've heard it said, this is an exact sign that the Lord's coming immediately. Or I, I heard one say, this is the uh, found in the pestilences which are uh, in the book of the Revelation. I say that no one can say for assurance what God's plan or timing is for this pandemic, for his second coming, or for the reasons for any other of the disasters which overtake this earth. Those are just assertions without any proof from scripture or from anywhere else that has any validity. It's not the Christian's role to explain the why of every happening on earth. We don't explain, we lament, we cry, 
We wait. We hope. We can and should question God, like the psalmist in Psalm 10, for example, where he laments, why do you hide yourself in the time of trouble? Or we could lament such as the psalmist did in Psalm 13 when he said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? These laments are what happens when we question God and don't get an immediate response. We cry in this case, but are unable to wait for God's answer. We bring to God our confusion, our loneliness, our worry, our sins, and even sometimes our accusations. We're grieving before a loving father. We are crying and waiting and hoping. We are able to have a confident hope because our God is above all the vacant explanations of why the pandemic has happened. He's enthroned in heaven. He's everlasting. He sees all and knows all. He's the immovable rock, the fortress, and the deliverer. And therefore, we can trust in him with our pain, our misunderstandings, our confusion and grief, even when he does not answer us directly, immediately. We cry. We wait. We hope. Because he's in control. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed this morning to be able to come to you again now in prayer. Like the Lord, we pray to a Father in heaven, a hallowed Father with the name of I Am. We pray that your kingdom comes soon. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We have cried out to you in our sin and have been heard. You have forgiven us our trespasses and daily provide us with food with shelter, and the comfort of persons who love us. So we bless you, Father, and we wait on you for the pleasure of your answer to our prayers. We hope in your love and faithfulness, and we wait for your coming. Thank you again for every blessing to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, who we honor and praise. Amen.